Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis Chapter 13 No one in the medical world had ever damned more heartily than Gottlieb the commercialism of certain large pharmaceutical firms, particularly Dawson T. Hunziker and Company, Incorporated of Pittsburgh. The Hunziker Company was an old and ethical house which dealt only with reputable doctors. Or practically only with reputable doctors. It furnished excellent antitoxins for diphtheria and tetanus, as well as the purest of official preparations, with the plainest and most official-looking labels on the swaggeringly modest brown bottles. Gottlieb had asserted that they produced doubtful vaccines, yet he returned from Chicago to write to Dawson Hunziker that he was no longer interested in teaching, and he would be willing to work for them on half-time if he might use their laboratories, on possibly important research, for the rest of the day. When the letter had gone, he sat mumbling. He was certainly not altogether sane. Education, biggest gymnasium in the world, incapable of responsibility, teaching I can do no more, but Hunziker will laugh at me. I have told the truth about him, and I shall have to—dear God, what shall I do?" Into this still frenzy, while his frightened daughters peered at him from doorways, hope glided. The telephone rang. He did not answer it. On the third irascible burring, he took up the receiver and grumbled, "'Yes, yes, what is it?' A twanging, nonchalant voice. This M.C. Gottlieb? This is Dr. Gottlieb. Well, I guess you're the party. Hold a wire. Long distance wants ya. Then, Professor Gottlieb, this is Dawson Hunziker speaking, from Pittsburgh. My dear fellow, we should be delighted to have you join our staff. I, but, I believe you have criticized the pharmaceutical houses. Oh, we read the newspaper clippings very efficiently. But we feel that when you come to us and understand the spirit of the old firm better, you'll be enthusiastic. I hope, by the way, I'm not interrupting something. Thus, over certain hundreds of miles, from the gold-and-blue drawing-room of his Sewickley home, Hunziker spoke to Max Gottlieb, sitting in his patched easy-chair, and Gottlieb grated with a forlorn effort at dignity. No, it is all right. Well, we shall be glad to offer you $5,000 a year for a starter, and we shan't worry about the half-time arrangement. We'll give you all the space and technicians and material you need, and you just go ahead and ignore us, and work out whatever seems important to you. Our only request is that if you do find any serums which are of real value to the world, we shall have the privilege of manufacturing them. And if we lose money on them, it doesn't matter." We like to make money, if we can do it honestly, but our chief purpose is to serve mankind. Of course, if the serums pay, we shall be only too delighted to give you a generous commission. Now, about practical details. Part 2 Gottlieb, the placidly virulent hater of religious rights, had a religious-seeming custom. Often he knelt by his bed and let his mind run free. It was very much like prayer, though certainly there was no formal invocation, 
no consciousness of a supreme being other than Max Gottlieb. This night, as he knelt with the wrinkles softening his drawn face, he meditated. I was asinine that I should ever scold the commercialists. This salesman fellow, he has his feet on the ground. How much more authentic the worst counterjumper than frightened professors! Fine deaners! Freedom! No teaching of imbeciles! Du Heiliger! But he had no contract with Dawson Hunziker. In the medical periodicals, the Dawson Hunziker Company published full page advertisements, most starchy and refined in type, announcing that Professor Max Gottlieb, perhaps the most distinguished immunologist in the world, had joined their staff. In his Chicago clinic, one Dr. Roundsfield chuckled. That's what becomes of these super highbrows. Pardon me if I seem to grin. In the laboratories of Ehrlich and Rue, Bourdais and Sir David Bruce, sorrowing men wailed, How could old Max have gone over to that damned pill peddler? Why didn't he come to us? Oh well, if he didn't want to. Voila, he is dead. In the village of Wheatsylvania, in North Dakota, a young doctor protested to his wife, Of all the people in the world, I wouldn't have believed it. Max Gottlieb falling for those crooks. I don't care, said his wife. If he's gone into business, he had some good reason for it. I told you, I'd leave you for... Oh, well, sighingly. Give and forgive. I learned a lot from Gottlieb, and I'm grateful for... God, Leora, I wish he hadn't gone wrong... And Max Gottlieb, with his three young and a pale, slow-moving wife, was arriving at the station in Pittsburgh, tugging a shabby wicker bag, an immigrant bundle, and a Bond Street dressing case. From the train he had stared up at the valiant cliffs, down to the smoke-tinged splendor of the river, and his heart was young. Here was fiery enterprise, not the flat land and flat mines of Winnemac. At the station entrance, every dingy taxicab seemed radiant to him, and he marched forth a conqueror. Part 3 In the Dawson-Hunziker building, Gottlieb found such laboratories as he had never planned, and instead of student assistants, he had an expert who himself had taught bacteriology, as well as three swift technicians, one of them German-trained. He was received with acclaim in the private office of Hunziker, which was remarkably like a minor cathedral. Hunziker was bald and businesslike as to skull, but tortoise-spectacled and sentimental of eye. He stood up at his Jacobean desk, gave Gottlieb a Havana cigar, and told him that they had awaited him pantingly. In the enormous staff dining room, Gottlieb found scores of competent young chemists and biologists who treated him with reverence. He liked them. If they talked too much of money, of how much this new tincture of cinchona ought to sell, and how soon their salaries would be increased, yet they were free of the careful pomposities of college instructors. As a youngster, the cap-tilted young Max had been a laughing man, and now, in gusty arguments, his laughter came back. 
His wife seemed better. His daughter Miriam found an excellent piano teacher. The boy Robert entered college that autumn. They had a spacious though decrepit house. The relief from the droning and the annually repeated inevitable routine of the classroom was exhilarating. And Gottlieb had never in his life worked so well. He was unconscious of everything outside of his laboratory and a few theaters and concert halls. Six months passed before he realized that the young technical experts resented what he considered his jolly thrusts at their commercialism. They were tired of his mathematical enthusiasms, and some of them viewed him as an old bore, muttered of him as a Jew. He was hurt, for he liked to be merry with fellow workers. He began to ask questions and to explore the Hunziker building. He had seen nothing of it save his laboratory, a corridor or two, the dining room, and Hunziker's office. However abstracted and impractical, Gottlieb would have made an excellent Sherlock Holmes. If anybody who would have made an excellent Sherlock Holmes would have been willing to be a detective. His mind burned through appearances to actuality. He discovered now that the Dawson-Hunziker Company was quite all he had asserted in earlier days. They did make excellent antitoxins and ethical preparations, but they were also producing a new cancer remedy manufactured from the orchid, pontifically recommended and possessing all the value of mud. And to various billboard advertising beauty companies, they sold millions of bottles of a complexion cream guaranteed to turn a Canadian Indian guide as lily-fair as the angels. This treasure cost six cents a bottle to make and a dollar over the counter, and the name of Dawson Hunziker was never connected with it. It was at this time that Gottlieb succeeded in his masterwork after twenty years of seeking. He produced antitoxin in the test tube, which meant that it would be possible to immunize against certain diseases without tediously making sera by the inoculation of animals. It was a revolution, the revolution, in immunology. If he was right. He revealed it at a dinner for which Hunziker had captured a general, a college president, and a pioneer aviator. It was an expansive dinner with admirable hock, the first decent German wine Gottlieb had drunk in years. He twirled the slender green glass affectionately. He came out of his dreams and became excited, gay, demanding. They applauded him, and for an hour he was a great scientist. Of them all, Hunziker was most generous in his praise. Gottlieb wondered if someone had not tricked this good bald man into intrigues with the beautifiers. Hunziker summoned him to the office the next day. Hunziker did his summoning very well indeed, unless it happened to be merely a stenographer. He sent a glossy, morning-coated male secretary who presented Mr. Hunziker's compliments to the much less glossy Dr. Gottlieb, and hinted with the delicacy of a lilac bud that if it was quite altogether convenient, if it would not in the least interfere with Dr. Gottlieb's experiments, Mr. Hunziker would be flattered to see him in the office at a quarter after three. When Gottlieb rambled in, 
Hunziker motioned the secretary out of existence and drew up a tall Spanish chair. I lay awake half the night thinking about your discovery, Dr. Gottlieb. I've been talking to the technical director and sales manager, and we feel it's the time to strike. We'll patent your method of synthesizing antibodies and immediately put them on the market in large quantities with a great big advertising campaign. You know, not circus it, of course. Strictly high-class ethical advertising. We'll start with anti-diphtheria serum. By the way, when you receive your next check, you'll find we've raised your honorarium to 7000 a year. Hunziker was a large, purring pussy now, and Gottlieb death still. Need I say, my dear fellow, that if there's the demand I anticipate, you will have exceedingly large commissions coming. Hunziker leaned back with a manner of, How's that for glory, my boy? Gottlieb spoke nervously. I do not approve of patenting serological processes. They should be open to all laboratories. And I am strongly against premature production or even announcement. I think I am right, but I must check my technique, perhaps improve it, be sure. Then I should think there should be no objection to market production, but in very small quantities, and in fair competition with others, not under patents, as if this was a dinglebat toy for the Christmas tradings. My dear fellow, I quite sympathize. Personally, I should like nothing so much as to spend my whole life in just producing one priceless scientific discovery, without consideration of mere profit." but we have our duty toward the stockholders of the Dawson-Hunziker Company to make money for them. Do you realize that they have, and many of them are poor widows and orphans, invested their little all in our stock, and that we must keep faith? I am helpless. I am but their humble servant. And on the other side, we've given you complete freedom, and we intend to go on treating you well." Why, man, you'll be rich. You'll be one of us. I don't like to make any demands, but on this point it's my duty to insist, and I shall expect you at the earliest possible moment to start manufacturing. Gottlieb was sixty-two. The defeat at Winnemac had done something to his courage. And he had no contract with Hunziker. He protested shakily but as he crawled back to his laboratory, it seemed impossible for him to leave this sanctuary and face the murderous, brawling world. And quite as impossible to tolerate a cheapened and ineffective imitation of his antitoxin. He began, that hour, a sordid strategy which his old, proud self would have called inconceivable. He began to equivocate, to put off announcement and production till he should have cleared up a few points, while week on week Hunziker became more threatening. Meantime, he prepared for disaster. He moved his family to a smaller house and gave up every luxury, even smoking. Among his economies was the reduction of his son's allowance. Robert was a square-rigged, swart, tempestuous boy arrogant where there seemed to be no reason for arrogance, longed for by the anemic, milky sort of girls, 
yet ever supercilious to them. While his father was alternately proud and amiably sardonic about his own Jewish blood, the boy conveyed to his classmates in college that he was from pure and probably noble German stock. He was welcomed, or half-welcomed, in a motoring, poker-playing country club set, and he had to have more money. Gottlieb missed $20 from his desk. He who ridiculed conventional honor had the honor, as he had the pride, of a savage old squire. A new misery strained his incessant bitterness at having to deceive Hunziker. He faced Robert with, "'My boy, did you take the money from my desk?' Few youngsters could have faced that jut of his hawk nose, the red-veined rage of his sunken eyes. Robert spluttered, then shouted, "'Yes, I did, and I've got to have some more. I've got to get some clothes and stuff. It's your fault. You bring me up to train with a lot of fellows that have all the cash in the world, and then you expect me to dress like a hobo.' "'Stealing.' "'Rats, what's stealing?' You're always making fun of these preachers that talk about sin and truth and honesty and all those words that have been used so much they don't mean a darn thing, and I don't care. Dawes Hunziker, the old man's son, he told me his dad said you could be a millionaire, and then you keep us strapped like this, and Mom's sick? Let me tell you, back in Mohalis, Mom used to slip me a couple of dollars almost every week, and I'm tired of it. If you're going to keep me in rags, I'm going to cut out college. Gottlieb stormed, but there was no force in it. He did not know, all the next fortnight, what his son was going to do, what himself was going to do. Then, so quietly that not till they had returned from the cemetery did they realize her passing, his wife died and the next week his oldest daughter ran off with a worthless laughing fellow who lived by gambling. Gottlieb sat alone. Over and over he read the book of Job. Truly the Lord hath smitten me and my house, he whispered. When Robert came in, mumbling that he would be good, the old man lifted to him a blind face, unhearing. But as he repeated the fables of his fathers, it did not occur to him to believe them, or to stoop in fear before their god of wrath, or to gain ease by permitting Hunziker to defile his discovery. He arose, in time, and went silently to his laboratory. His experiments were as careful as ever, and his assistants saw no change save that he did not lunch in hall. He walked blocks away to a vile restaurant at which he could save thirty cents a day. Part 4 Out of the dimness which obscured the people about him, Miriam emerged. She was eighteen, the youngest of his brood, squat and in no way comely save for her tender mouth. She had always been proud of her father, understanding the mysterious and unreasoning compulsions of his science. But she had been in awe till now, when he walked heavily and spoke rarely. She dropped her piano lessons, discharged the maid, studied the cookbook, and prepared for him the fat, crisp dishes that he loved. 
Her regret was that she had never learned German, for he dropped now and then into the speech of his boyhood. He eyed her, and at length, So, one is with me. Could you endure the poverty if I went away to teach chemistry in a high school? Yes, of course. Maybe I could play the piano in a movie theater. He might not have done it without her loyalty. But when Dawson Hunziker next paraded into the laboratory, demanding, Now look here, we've fussed long enough. We gotta put your stuff on the market. Then Gottlieb answered, No. If you wait till I have done all I can, maybe one year, probably three, you shall have it. But not till I am sure. No. Hunziker went off huffily, and Gottlieb prepared for sentence. Then the card of Dr. A. DeWitt Tubbs, director of the McGurk Institute of Biology of New York, was brought to him. Gottlieb knew of Tubbs. He had never visited McGurk, but he considered it, next to Rockefeller and McCormick, the soundest and freest organization for pure scientific research in the country. And if he had pictured a heavenly laboratory in which good scientists might spend eternity in happy and thoroughly impractical research, he would have devised it in the likeness of McGurk. He was mildly pleased that its director should have called on him. Dr. A. DeWitt Tubbs was tremendously whiskered on all visible spots save his nose and temples and the palms of his hands, short but passionately whiskered, like a Scotch terrier. Yet they were not comic whiskers. They were the whiskers of dignity. And his eyes were serious, his step an earnest trot, his voice a piping solemnity. Dr. Gottlieb, this is a great pleasure. I have heard your papers at the Academy of Sciences, but, to my own loss, I have hitherto failed to have an introduction to you. Gottlieb tried not to sound embarrassed. Tubbs looked at the assistants, like a plotter in a political play, and hinted, "'May we have a talk?' Gottlieb led him to his office, overlooking a vast bustle of side-tracks, of curving rails and brown freight cars, and Tubbs urged, "'It has come to our attention, by a curious chance, that you are on the eve of your most significant discovery.' We all wondered, when you left academic work, at your decision to enter the commercial field. We wished that you had cared to come to us. You would have taken me in? I needn't at all have come here? Naturally. Now from what we hear, you are not giving your attention to the commercial side of things, and that tempts us to wonder whether you could be persuaded to join us at McGurk. So I just sprang on a train and ran down here. We should be delighted to have you become a member of the Institute and Chief of the Department of Bacteriology and Immunology. Mr. McGurk and I desire nothing but the advancement of science. You would, of course, have absolute freedom as to what researches you thought it best to pursue, and I think we could provide as good assistance and material as would be obtainable anywhere in the world. In regard to salary, Permit me to be businesslike and perhaps blunt, as my train leaves in one hour. I don't suppose we could equal the doubtless large emolument which the Hunziker people are able to pay you. 
but we can go to ten thousand dollars a year? Oh, my God, do not talk of the money. I shall be with you in New York one week from today. You see, said Gottlieb, I have no contract here. Chapter 14 All afternoon they drove in the flapping buggy across the long undulations of the prairie. To their wandering there was no barrier, neither lake nor mountain nor factory bristling city, and the breeze about them was flowing sunshine. Martin cried to Leora, I feel as if all the zenith dust and hospital lint were washed out of my lungs. Dakota, real man's country, frontier, opportunity, America. From the thick swale the young prairie chickens rose. As he watched them sweep across the wheat, his sun-dropped spirit was part of the great land, and he was almost freed of the impatience with which he had started out from Wheatsylvania. If you're going driving, don't forget that supper is six o'clock sharp, Mrs. Tozer had said, smiling to sugarcoat it. On Main Street, Mr. Tozer waved to them and shouted, Be back by six, supper at six o'clock sharp. Bert Tozer ran out from the bank like a country schoolmaster skipping from a one-room schoolhouse and cackled, Say, you folks better not forget to be back at six o'clock for supper or the old man'll have a fit. He'll expect you for supper at six o'clock sharp, and when he says six o'clock sharp, he means six o'clock sharp, and not five minutes past six. Now that, observed Leora, is funny, because in my twenty-two years in Wheatsylvania, I remember three different times when supper was as late as seven minutes after six. Let's get out of this, Sandy. I wonder, were we so wise to live with the family and save money? Before they had escaped from the not very extensive limits of Wheatsylvania, they passed Ada Quist, the future Mrs. Bert Tozer, and through the lazy air they heard her voice slashing, Better be home by six. Martin would be heroic. We'll by golly get back when we're by golly good and ready, he said to Leora. But on them both was the cumulative dread of the fussing voices, Beyond every breezy prospect was the order, be back at six sharp, and they whipped up to arrive at eleven minutes to six, as Mr. Tozer was returning from the creamery, full thirty seconds later than usual. Glad to see you among us, he said. Hustle now and get that horse in the livery stable. Supper's at six sharp. Martin survived it sufficiently to sound domestic when he announced at the supper table, we had a bully drive. I'm going to like it here. Well, I've loafed for a day and a half, and now I've got to get busy. First thing is, I must find a location for my office. What is there vacant, Father Tozer? Mrs. Tozer said brightly, Oh, I have such a nice idea, Martin. Why can't we fix up an office for you out in the barn? It'd be so handy to the house for you to get to meals on time and you could keep an eye on the house if the girl was out, and Ori and I went out visiting or to the embroidery circle. In the barn? Why, yes, in the old harness room. It's partly sealed, and we could put in some nice tar paper or even beaver board. Mother Tozer, what the dickens do you think I'm planning to do? I'm not a hired man in a livery stable. 
or a kid looking for a place to put his bird's eggs. I was thinking of opening an office as a physician. Bert made it all easy. Yeah, but you aren't much of a physician yet. You're just getting your toes in. I'm one hell of a good physician. Excuse me for cussing, Mother Tozer, but... Why, nights in the hospital, I've held hundreds of lives in my hand. I intend... Look here, Mart, said Bertie. As we're putting up the money, I don't want to be a tightwad, but after all, a dollar is a dollar. If we furnish the dough, we've got to decide the best way to spend it. Mr. Tozer looked thoughtful and said helplessly, That's so. No sense taking a risk with the blame farmers demanding all the money they can get for their wheat and cream and then deliberately going to work and not paying the interest on their loans. I swear, it don't hardly pay to invest in mortgages any longer. No sense putting on lugs. Stands to reason you can look at a fellow's sore throat or prescribe for an earache just as well in a nice simple little office as in some fool place all fixed up like a moorhead saloon. Mother will see you have a comfortable corner in the barn. Leora intruded. Look here, Papa. I want you to lend us $1,000 outright to use as we see fit. The sensation was immense. We'll pay you 6%. No, we won't. We'll pay you 5 That's enough. And mortgages bringing 6 7 and 8 Bert quavered. Five's enough and we want our own say, absolute, as to how we use it, to fit up an office or anything else. Mr. Tozer began. That's a foolish way to— Bert took it away from him. Ori, you're crazy. I suppose we'll have to lend you some money, but you'll blame well come to us for it from time to time, and you'll blame well take our advice. Leora rose. Either you do what I say, just exactly what I say, or Mart and I take the first train and go back to Zenith, and I mean it. Plenty of places open for him there, with a big salary, so he won't have to be dependent on anybody. There was much conversation, most of which sounded like all the rest of it. Once Leora started for the stairs to go up and pack. Once Martin and she stood waving their napkins as they shook their fists, the general composition remarkably like the Laocoon. Leora won. They settled down to the most solacing fussing. Did you bring your trunk up from the depot? asked Mr. Tozer. No sense leaving it there, paying two bits a day storage, fumed Bert. I got it up this morning, said Martin. Oh yes, Martin had it brought up this morning, agreed Mrs. Tozer. You had it brought... "'Didn't you bring it up yourself?' agonized Mr. Tozer. "'No. I had the fellow that runs the lumber yard haul it up for me,' said Martin. "'Well, gosh almighty, you could just as well have put it in a wheelbarrow "'and brought it up yourself and saved a quarter,' said Bert. "'But a doctor has to keep his dignity,' said Leora. "'Dignity, rats!' Blame sight more dignified to be seen shoving a wheelbarrow "'than smoking them dirty cigarettes all the time.' "'Well, anyway, where'd you put it?' asked Mr. Tozer. "'It's up in our room,' said Martin. "'Where'd you think we better put it when it's unpacked? "'The attic is awful full,' Mr. Tozer submitted to Mrs. Tozer. "'Oh, I think Martin could get it in there.' 
Why couldn't he put it in the barn? Oh, not a nice new trunk like that. What's the matter with the barn, said Bert. It's all nice and dry. Seems a shame to waste all that good space in the barn, now that you've gone and decided he mustn't have his dear little office there. Bertie, from Leora. I know what we'll do. You seem to have the barn on your brain. You move your old bank there, and Martin'll take the bank building for his office. That's entirely different. Now there's no sense you two showing off and trying to be smart, protested Mr. Tozer. Do you ever hear your mother and I scrapping and fussing like that? When do you think you'll have your trunk unpacked, Mart? Mr. Tozer could consider barns, and he could consider trunks, but his was not a brain to grasp two such complicated matters at the same time. I can get it unpacked tonight if it makes any difference. Well, I don't suppose it really makes any special difference, but when you start to do a thing, oh, what difference does it make whether he, if he's going to look for an office instead of moving right into the barn, he can't take a month of Sundays getting unpacked and, oh, good Lord, I'll get it done tonight. And I think we can get it in the attic. I tell you, it's jam full already. We'll go take a look at it after supper. Well, now, I tell you, when I tried to get that duck boat in, Martin probably did not scream, but he heard himself screaming. The free and virile land was leagues away and for years forgotten. Part 2 To find an office took a fortnight of diplomacy and of discussion brightening three meals a day, every day. Not that office finding was the only thing the Tozers mentioned. They went thoroughly into every moment of Martin's day— they commented on his digestion, his mail, his walks, his shoes that needed cobbling, and whether he had yet taken them to the farmer-trapper-cobbler. Mr. Tozer had from the first known the perfect office. The Norblums lived above their general store, and Mr. Tozer knew that the Norblums were thinking of moving. There was indeed nothing that was happening or likely to happen in Wheatsylvania which Mr. Tozer did not know and explain. Mrs. Norblum was tired of keeping house, and she wanted to go to Mrs. Beeson's boarding house, to the front room, on the right as he went along the upstairs hall, the room with the plaster walls and the nice little stove that Mrs. Beeson bought from Otto Cragg for seven dollars and thirty-five cents. No, seven and a quarter it was. They called on the Norblums, and Mr. Tozer hinted that, it might be nice for the doctor to locate over the store if the Norblums were thinking of making any change. The Norblums stared at each other with long, bleached, cautious Scandinavian stares and grumbled that they didn't know. Of course, it was the finest location in town. Mr. Norblum admitted that if, against all probability, they ever considered moving, they would probably ask $25 a month for the flat, unfurnished. Mr. Tozer came out of the International Conference as craftily joyful as any Mr. Secretary Tozer or Lord Tozer in Washington or London. Fine, fine, we made him commit himself. Twenty-five, he says. That means when the time's ripe, we'll offer him eighteen and close for twenty-one seventy-five. If we just handle him careful and give him time to go see Mrs. Beeson and fix up about boarding with her— We'll have him just where we want him. Oh, if the Norblums can't make up their minds, then let's try something else, said Martin. 
There's a couple of vacant rooms behind the Eagle office. What? Go chasing round? After we've given the Norblums reason to think we're serious? And make enemies of them for life? Now that would be a fine way to start building up a practice, wouldn't it? And I must say I wouldn't blame the Norblums one bit for getting wild if you let them down like that. This ain't Zenith, where you can go yelling around expecting to get things done in two minutes. Through a fortnight, while the Norblums agonized over deciding to do what they had long ago decided to do, Martin waited, unable to begin work. Until he should open a certified and recognizable office, most of the village did not regard him as a competent physician, but as that son-in-law of Andy Tozer's. In the fortnight he was called only once, for the sick headache of Miss Agnes Ingleblad, aunt and housekeeper of Alex Ingleblad, the barber. He was delighted, till Bert Tozer explained, Oh, so she called you in, eh? She's always doctoring around. There ain't a thing the matter with her, but she's always trying out the latest stunt. Last time it was a fellow that come through here selling pills and liniments out of a Ford, and the time before that it was a faith healer, crazy loon up here at Dutchman's Forge. And then for quite a spell she doctored with an osteopath. They cure a lot of folks that you regular docs can't seem to find out what's the matter with them, don't you think so? Martin remarked that he did not think so. Oh, you docs, Bert crowed in his most jocund manner, for Bert could be very jokey and bright. You're all alike, especially when you're just out of school and think you know it all. You can't see any good in chiropractic of electric belts or bone setters or anything, because they take so many good dollars away from you. Then behold the Dr. Martin Aerosmith, who had once infuriated Angus Dewar and Irving Waters by his sarcasm on medical standards, upholding to a lewdly grinning Bert Tozer the benevolence and scientific knowledge of all doctors, proclaiming that no medicine had ever, at least by any Winnemac graduate, been prescribed in vain, nor any operation needlessly performed. He saw a good deal of Bert now, he sat about the bank, hoping to be called on a case, his fingers itching for bandages. Ada Quist came in with frequency, and Bert laid aside his figuring to be coy with her. You gotta be careful what you even think about when the doc is here, Aide. He's been telling me what a whale of a lot of neurology and all that mind-reading stuff he knows. How about it, Mart? I'm getting so scared that I've changed the combination on the safe. Heh. <laughs> said Ada. He may fool some folks, but he can't fool me. Anybody can learn things in books, but when it comes to practicing them. Let me tell you, Mart, if you ever have one-tenth of the savvy that old Dr. Winter of Leopolis has, you'll live longer than I expect. Together they pointed out that for a person who felt his zenith training had made him so gosh-awful smart that he sticks up his nose at us poor hicks of dirt farmers— Martin's scarf was rather badly tied. All of his own wit, and some of Ada's, Bert repeated at the supper-table. "'You oughtn't to ride the boy so hard. Still, that was pretty cute about the necktie. I guess Mart does think he's some punkins,' chuckled Mr. Tozer. Leora took Martin aside after supper. "'Darlin', can you stand it? We'll have our own house soon as we can. Or shall we vamoose?' 
I'm by golly going to stand it. Um, maybe. Dear, when you hit Birdie, do be careful. They'll hang you. He ambled to the front porch. He determined to view the rooms behind the Eagle office. Without a retreat in which to be safe from Bert, he could not endure another week. He could not wait for the Norblums to make up their minds, though they had become to him dread and eternal figures whose enmity would crush him, prodigious gods shadowing this Wheatsylvania which was the only perceptible world. He was aware, in the late sad light, that a man was tramping the plank walk before the house, hesitating and peering at him. The man was one wise, a Russian Jew known to the village as Wise the Polak. In his shack near the railroad, he sold silver stock and motor factory stock, bought and sold farmlands and horses and muskrat hides. He called out, That you, Doc? Yep. Martin was excited, a patient. Say, I wish you'd walk down a ways with me. Couple things I'd like to talk to you about. Or say, Come on over to my place and sample some new cigars I've got. He emphasized the word cigars. North Dakota was, like Mohalis, theoretically dry. Martin was pleased. He had been sober and industrious so long now. Wise's shack was a one-story structure, not badly built, half a block from Main Street, with nothing but the railroad track between it and open wheat country. It was lined with pine, pleasant-smelling under the stench of old pipe smoke. Wise winked. He was a confidential, untrustworthy wisp of a man, and murmured, "'Think you could stand a little jolt of first-class Kentucky bourbon?' "'Well, I wouldn't get violent about it.' Wise pulled down the sleazy window shades, and from a warped drawer of his desk brought up a bottle, out of which they both drank, wiping the mouth of the bottle with circling palms. Then wise, abruptly. Look here, Doc. You're not like these hicks. You understand that sometimes a fellow gets mixed up in crooked business he didn't intend to. Well, make a long story short, I guess I've sold too much mining stock, and they'll be coming down on me. I've got to be moving. Curse it. Hoped I could stay settled for a couple of years this time. Well, I hear you're looking for an office. This place would be ideal. Ideal. Two rooms at the back besides this one. I'll rent it to you, furniture and the whole shooting match, for $15 a month, if you'll pay me one year in advance. Oh, this ain't phony. Your brother-in-law knows all about my ownership. Martin tried to be very businesslike. Was he not a young doctor who would soon be investing money, one of the most substantial citizens in Wheatsylvania? He returned home, and under the parlor lamp, with its green daisies on pink glass, the Tozers listened acutely, Bert stooping forward with open mouth. "'You'd be safe renting it for a year, but that ain't the point,' said Bert. "'It certainly isn't. Antagonize the Norblums, now that they've almost made up their minds to let you have their place? Made me a fool, after all the trouble I've taken,' groaned Mr. Tozer." They went over it and over it till almost ten o'clock, but Martin was resolute, 
and the next day he rented Wise's shack. For the first time in his life, he had a place utterly his own, his and Leora's. In his pride of possession, this was the most lordly building on earth, and every rock and weed and doorknob was peculiar and lovely. At sunset, he sat on the back stoop, a very interesting and not too broken soapbox, and from the flamboyant horizon, the open country flowed across the thin band of the railroad to his feet. Suddenly, Leora was beside him, her arm round his neck, and he hymned all the glory of their future. Know what I found in the kitchen here? A dandy old auger, hardly rusty a bit, and I can take a box and make a test tube rack of my own.'"